Welcome to another 99th episode. We're getting back to Sandman, this time taking a look at the Distant Mirrors stories. So today, we're talking about the Sandman. Ah, yes, yes. These are some of my favorite episodes. I'm looking forward to this little batch, too. It's a little bit different, but also, like, we had the one episode that was all just kind of, like, one-shot stories, and this one has some of those, but then they also kind of tie in together with the bigger story that we're reading in this section. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I looked up, uh, so I had tweeted out last night that we were going to be talking about Sandman today, which by the time people hear this is probably like two or three weeks ago. Yep. Um, and somebody responded, because I, I was joking, because you were saying we're only reading half a trade, and I didn't know exactly how much of a trade we were reading, because I'm reading it in the hardcover collection. Somebody else responded uh, that, you know, they, they only read it in the floppies, you know. Cause oh, I that was, was Josie. Sorry, okay. okay. Yep. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Jonesy responded with that because I was joking, like, oh, yeah, who doesn't read it in the deluxe hardcover? And you were bragging about the absolutes. So I, I decided to look up when it started coming out. And it started coming out when I was five. So there's a good reason I don't have the floppies. I don't think I would have been allowed to get it at five. And I didn't start reading comics until I was in, like, my mid-20s, really, before I really settled into it. But I did read Sandman for the first time in my earlier 20s. Yeah, so by the time I was reading it, it wasn't exactly easy to find the floppies anyways, but it just got me thinking about like how different people find comics at different times and have different connections with how they read them. Yeah, I started reading Sandman when I was like 13 years old, and I was probably a little young for it. I had to have my parents come into the comic shop and give permission to the comic store employees to sell that book to me, because <laughs> otherwise they, they wouldn't. And... I loved it. I read it for about a year before I kind of grew out of comics altogether. Um, And that was during the Brief Lives storyline, which would be, I think, three more episodes after this one. Three more Sandman episodes after this one that we get to that. Yeah. But for this one, so you mentioned we're reading Half a Trade. Specifically, what we're talking about in this episode are the Distant Mirrors stories and the Sandman special. So if you're following along in floppies like Jonesy, this is issues 29, 30, and 31, and then the standalone Sandman special issue. If you're reading just trades, like the 10 volumes of trade paperbacks, and then this is the first half of the Fables and Reflections collection. It Were these all together in your collection like did you read did the sandman special come around the was it located in your book around these those three standalone issues so what is the sandman special that that's where because it doesn't label them as such as i'm reading them okay that's the song of orpheus okay yeah that came after thermidor and august and and the other one okay so that's around the time that it was published because it was published as a standalone book, kind of like an annual would be, but they just okay. called it the Sandman Special. And in terms of like cover date, it would have been published right after the last of these Distant Mirror stories, the three Septembers and a January. 
In my absolutes, though, they publish it right before Brief Lives. So it was actually in my next volume. They, they separated it, and it looks like they separated it so that the whole Orpheus story is fresh in readers' minds uh, going into Brief Lives, which deals a lot with Sandman and his son Orpheus. But even though it actually came out, closer to these stories which makes a lot more sense because this story makes the the uh, thermidor story make a lot more sense also mm-hmm. all right well yeah, i agree with that let's uh let, let's jump into it with that kind of technical stuff out of the way let's just hop into thermidor and this is the story of lady johanna constantine during the french revolution right at the end of the reign of terror trying to smuggle Orpheus's head out of uh, Paris, France. One thing that's cool about all three of these stories is that they all take place in like, um, yeah, all of these interact with actual historical events, which is kind of neat. It kind of takes the history and then places the Sandman story inside of it i guess making it i don't know what is that called i don't know historical fiction yeah i guess so yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> uh one of them i particularly liked um i started trying to look i'll talk about it more when we get to but I actually started trying to look at a book to read more about the historical aspect of it uh which proved a little more difficult than i would have hoped but um like i said i'll mention that a little bit more when we get to it because it is not this one gotcha okay so this one was a lot more like plot driven. It was much more kind of like a go get them. Let's let's go tell a story type of story where this is all about a story where we're talking about events rather than a story where we're kind of more of like a, a character type thing like we saw with the last batch of standalone stories. One thing that I think is really cool is that this character of Johanna Constantine is obviously it's a riff on John Constantine from Hellblazer. Mm. And I think that this is intended to be a distant relative or ancestor of John Constantine. But I think it's very clearly indicated that she's intended to be of that lineage. So she's kind of like the John Constantine of the late 1700s. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, ties that in together makes it a little more fun a little more reference to something else yeah i was thinking about what is the through line of these issues like what is is the thing that ties them all together kind of thematically i think what ties them all together in terms of plots is this idea that we're taking a historical event or a historical time and dropping sandman into it as something that you know as has having something to do with what's going on but i was trying to also think about uh what the the kind of reason for this was like what what what's the kind of overall theme of these and i think what i saw is that it's about stories and the way stories can affect history that's i think kind of what what my takeaway was because what's what's kind of weird about this story is that it implies that 
Orpheus ended the reign of terror. When he sang his song, it damaged this story that uh, Saint Just and Robespierre were using to prop up and maintain the reign of terror. And it, it ended because of that, because Orpheus sang his song that was able to disrupt that dream of theirs. Yeah, you know, it's funny because it, as we're talking about this, I was thinking about this compared to the other two stories because the other two stories feel very much more like you see the fringes of what's going on and you see how Sandman, you know, Morpheus, affects a real-life event. And this one is very much a real, uh, like you said, this is um, uh, plot-driven. So, like, the other ones are much less plot-driven. This is very plot-driven. But then you get to the end, and it ends with that little twist of, oh, look what this did, you know? The other ones, the whole time is kind of like, um, you know, here's this character. You see them living their life, and you see what how Sandman affects it on the fringes. This yeah. one's very different. And he even says in the beginning of this, like, he needs something done, and he can't do it. He can't be seen to have the effect that you know the the action would have, and that's why he enlists um, Constantine to do it. So this this story is very different than the next two we're going to talk about in that in that regard. But you're right that like when it gets down to the end of it, it's a story about how this one little thing that was unseen has a greater effect on history. And I I looked that up a little bit that. This actually is pretty accurate to history that there was, I think it's called like the Thermidor Revolution or something like that. That was the end of the Reign of Terror where there was a revolt against St. Just and Robespierre's their Reign of Terror. Basically, they were the heads of it. And there was a big revolt against them that ended it. And it happened right at this time in this, this year in the month of Thermidor, which is actually July. And that's another interesting thing about these. Essentially, these books are July, August, and September in terms of the months. And I wonder if the months that they came out actually lined up with the months that they're named after. I think that that would have been a pretty neat thing. I think probably they were. That seems like the kind of thing they would do, but... I have no idea because I wasn't reading it back then, as we talked about. We'll have to ask Jonesy since he has them all in floppies. Yeah, but I don't think he was buying them as they came out, though, so that's the tricky thing. (laughs) I think that this one is interesting because Johanna Constantine was introduced earlier in the Hobgadling issue, where she bursts in on them in their every 100 years meeting in the pub and says, you guys are demons, and... Sandman's like, and no, we're not, <laughs> and puts her to sleep or something like that, and then they leave. And but then he he comes back and is like, "Hey, I got a job for you." <laughs> so it's kind of a interesting tie between this issue and the previous ones. And also, I think that this is the first time we see Orpheus, which is kind of weird. We find out that well, he has a son. And there's something odd going on where he can't interfere with his life, which that's a whole thing in and of itself. So it takes these pieces from the rest of the story and places them all together in in kind of an interesting way. 
but you know, beyond that, I'm I'm kind of having trouble talking about this. This one feels mostly more of like a historical adventure than anything else. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot more to say about this one. It's just you know Joanna Constantine getting the head, and you know, getting it back to where the uh, the priests or the monks or whatever can take care of it. I mean, basically, just Morpheus didn't want his son's head. I don't want his head to rest in peace, even though he's still alive and just a head. Um, I I was very grateful for reading the other story after this. It like it would almost fit better if this if it was flip flopped and you you read the Song of Orpheus before this, so that way you didn't already know that he was just a living head before it. But at the same time, this kind of gave you that introduction and. The surprise twist at the end is never really the biggest aspect of a Sandman story, so it doesn't really matter that much. It's a good. It was a good story though. This it was one that like some of these one kind of one off stories like they're so packed with with reading, you know, talking letters being written, stuff like that. That I was reading this, I was like, oh man, how am I going to read this all in time? And you get past that, and it loosens up a lot. Like that one was just like so densely packed with moving forward and what was going on. And kind of setting the scene and making you understand what was happening. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I think it makes more sense to have the Sandman special read it with these batch of stories. Because I think it helps a lot to inform this story. It doesn't... And and while, yes, it informs the brief life stories, it's more important, I think, for filling this one in. in. Reading the Sandman special, Song of Orpheus, makes this one make a lot more sense about what's going on and why it might be so important and and all of that and what what the deal is why is there this magic head type of thing yeah uh well you want to hop on to the next one then yeah okay this is august and in this one emperor augustus goes out with caius the dwarf after spreading some nasty stuff on them that makes it look like their faces all pussed up with boils and they go sit in the marketplace for a day. And this is the emperor's day to be among the paupers in a unrecognized way. And he kind of tells some stories and thinks about stuff. And that's kind of it. Yeah, I love how the, the stuff they put on to make them look like they have boils is soap. And he's like, oh, yep. this smells horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they sit and they talk. I mean, it's not until you get pretty far into it that you get more idea of what's going on with this. He, you know, he finally says that he was guided to do this to hide from the gods to be able to think about what needed to be done. And the the gods that they're talking about, like they're talking about the previous um emperor which was uh Caesar, right? Julius Caesar? Yeah, well Augustus was the first emperor of Rome because okay. C- Caesar was never an emperor. He was, I think, dictator, and he essentially became dictator for life. I, I think it's it's kind of complicated, but it's basically Caesar's time and rolling into Augustus's time is when the when Rome, the Republic ended and the Empire began. Okay. Yeah. He basically 
Caesar, you know, they're talking about he when he dies, he becomes a god. And he's talking about like, oh man, it's gonna be nice when I die and I'm just a god, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. He's guided to do this to hide from Caesar, basically, because what he's thinking about doing going forward is gonna be going against what kind of the status quo of how things should be done when running a you know an empire uh or republic or whatever are yeah this this was an interesting one like it's it's one of the rare times i think that just hearing somebody talk and talk like this is basically just them sitting there talking and it actually is pretty compelling compared to a lot of stories where it's just people sitting there talking where they don't have that much interesting to talk about and so reading about people just sitting there talking doesn't usually hold a lot of weight. But this one, you get little glimpses of stuff like, you know, he's unable to, to sleep and has to have a storyteller nearby to tell him a story to help him fall back to sleep. And then you get the bit where he calls for a storyteller and it's Morpheus who, you know, that's kind of like one of his titles is like, you know, the king of stories. Yeah. And then you get to the end and you kind of find out like why he has these night terrors and it's pretty messed up. Yeah, I mean, that, that whole time was so weird anyway. It's like you watch any kind of movie, show, or read something about um, anything in that, that frame of time, and you just know everything is going to be as screwed up as it can be. I'm going to kind of jump ahead too far if I go with my thoughts. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I agree. It's for a story that is basically two guys sitting on some steps and begging for change and talking. This became really, really compelling. I thought it was interesting. There's one line in here that Augustus says where he, he's talking about actors and he's apparently like outlawed actors. I mean, not quite outlawed them, but he's, he's talking about how he, he banned any noble from being an actor. And he says something along the, the lines about how all they do is lie for a living. And that's why he doesn't like them. And I thought that that was a really interesting counterpoint to that, Midsummer Night's Dream issue, where one of the theses of that is that just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it's not true. And it talked about actors as these people that can create truth out of things that didn't happen with their stories. And here he's saying the complete opposite of that. He just he doesn't believe in that truth that that there's truth there. He just considers it all lies. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting counterpoint to what we'd seen in that earlier issue. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, seeing his personality and then also at the end of the story, when you get exposed to what's behind some of his, his hangups and issues, you see that his reluctance to have, a like kind of like the underneath truth exposed like there's reason for that so like he's actually like reluctant to understand or to know deeper truths but then he's also this you know much more insightful leader where he's thinking about what like how should how should people be led like what's the right thing to do not just so i have power but to lead correctly and he has to go and hide from the eyes of, you know, the the gods that are there to, you know, give him guidance. It's really funny because, like, it's, he's kind of contradicting himself, but he's being genuine in both aspects, I think, where, 
know, he feels he has to go and hide from the gods that are supposed to give him guidance because he wants to do something differently. He sees the way things being done as being wrong. But then one of those gods is also one of the people that, like, all through the story he talks about, you know, going and learning from his uncle and, and all this kind of good stuff. And you get to the end of the story and you learn that he's basically emotionally scarred by being sexually assaulted by his uncle as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And so you get this, like, really conflicting nature in him. So he, you know, his... uh his wanting to kind of his harshness towards acting is he hasn't banned it, but he doesn't want um, you know certain he doesn't I, I'm I'm losing my words today he doesn't want gotcha. who to be uh-huh. actors he doesn't want the um, like the aristocracy to be actors right and mm-hmm. noblemen right so noblemen can't be actors uh, because he sees the need to create a separation there if you're a nobleman you shouldn't be doing this like foolish lying thing. He talks about uh, one actor that he had banished and he should have had killed because of how he was portraying Rome. And so, like, you know, that kind of gets you thinking it's probably because there was some truth to it. And the fact that that even comes up here probably actually sparked him to think about, like, you know, what's what's wrong? What do I need to do differently? Now, he's going out acting in this to uh, you know, to hide, but he, it also gives him a chance to see people as they really are because they're they're not treating him like an emperor; they're treating him like a pauper. And yeah. one thing that stands out to me in the story too is is for the most part they actually get treated pretty kindly. There's only one person that he, and even then that person just you know is like you know, if God gave them this, God can provide for them too. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't even abusive towards them, like how oh, you scum or anything like that. It was just, you know, I I don't feel I should donate to them because if uh, you know, if, if this is God's will, then God should will their care also. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it just there's just like a lot of kind of back and forth dynamic with this, and I think that's what made it really interesting. N- Neil Gaiman is so good at at writing about historical things with like a lot of accuracy that like you feel like you're kind of getting exposed to something or learning something, but he's so insightful with how he does it too. Like insightful to human nature and how he explores these things. Yeah. So this story was more interesting than I expected it to be. And it was more compelling than I expected it to be. That's maybe like the theme of (laughs) these entire set of issues, I think. The next one was my favorite, but this one was definitely interesting. What I really liked about this one is when we really get to the meat of what this is about, it's about these these dreams about what Rome is going to be, where he, uh, Augustus learned from Julius Caesar, basically, here's the prophecies of Rome. Either Rome is going to... R- reign the over the entire world for 10,000 years or it will last a couple hundred and slowly die out which is what actually did happen and it's Augustus that determined this because essentially it would come down to if Rome is allowed to just continually expand and that's what Rome does just continually expand around the world forever then that's what will lead to this 10,000 year reign but if he sets the borders to Rome and decides 
this is how big it's going to get and this is what it's going to be and we're going to just respect these these borders and never grow much more than this that is what will set it on the path of not really growing and that's really what he decides he decides to not make rome last for 10,000 years and that's really interesting that in the end that's the decision he made that this thing should come to an end that we've created yeah, it's funny too because with like this is indicative of anything. Like when something is continually growing, it has this forward momentum and and it continues on stronger. But the fact of the matter is that nothing can continue to go at that pace at that direction forever. So at some point, if you try to keep on expanding, it's gonna end. Like you're not gonna be able to. Um, but at the same time, it's it, you have to find stability in being static, and that can be very hard to do too. Because when you're founded on this growth, it's easy to it, it's it, stuff just kind of works out better. Everybody has the same thing that they're focused on for the most part, and you don't have to find a balance between things. And then honestly, especially at this time, it's like if something kind of gets in the way of that, you just kill it. You know, it's if, if somebody has a problem with how things are, you probably just kind of kill them and take them out of the way rather than address their grievances. So like, I, I also like with the story, like showing his conflict with that, like, okay, this, this growth, he, like he recognizes that the, the constant growth gives everybody the same goal to focus on. And he sees the difficulty in changing that. And then it mentions in here, uh, that he doesn't go through the names of all of them, but the, the leaders after him just get worse and worse and crazier and crazier. And that's where they try to, to go more static instead of continuing to, to to grow and then the leaders after him wanted the power they didn't want what was right for rome and that that's what eventually brought his downfall was the the corrupt leadership at that point you know mm-hmm. yeah it's true for anything though like with anything you can't continually grow you have to find a way to have stasis and balance at a certain point and if you can't do that, and that's that's harder to do than just continuing to grow. Well, I think that the issue is when a system is based off of continually growing, what happens when there's nowhere left to grow? Exactly, yeah. And, you, you know, I think that that's, that's kind of what, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know. I guess that ultimately the, the question that I have about this, and I don't quite know the answer to. So Augustus was had this choice, 10,000 years year-long reign of the Roman Empire or several hundred years where it slowly diminishes and dissolves away to nothing. And that's that's why he chooses. But why did he choose it? And part of me wonders, did he choose it purely because this was my uncle's dream and my uncle was so terrible that I can't trust in his dreams. And so I am going to choose to let his dream fade and wither because of his personal experiences with his uncle that's i i think that that's the reading of this i i could definitely see that especially when you think that his whole purpose for pretending to you know be a a leper or whatever is to hide from the the eyes of his god uncle to be able to have a chance to think about this Mm -hmm. yeah so obviously he knows that he's uh, you know, going in defiance of of 
what that it, man what a system for like making sure things don't change like all right so i'm i'm the all-powerful leader this is how things are also when i die i'm gonna be a god so i will know if you even think about doing something differently yeah that that's that's pretty intense yeah i want to jump to the next issue i do this one was my favorite yeah i like this one a lot this one has a lot of sentimentality for me uh, having lived in San Francisco for quite a number of years. But this is the three Septembers in a January, and it's about Emperor Norton, who was an actual person who he was essentially a failed business person who decided one day he proclaimed himself Emperor of the United States. And he was a, a resident of San Francisco, kind of just like a poor guy living in a, a small little apartment, but he just declared himself emperor and became a well-known citizen of San Francisco. This story is about how Sandman gave him this, this story of him being the emperor as a way to keep him out of despair and well, all his like other siblings uh, realms. And it was kind of just a big contest in a way, which is is kind of weird and petty, but it also leads to this really cool, interesting story. So uh, you said this was your favorite. Why was this one your favorite? Uh, Because the historical story was the most interesting to me. I mean, the other ones were based off of real, I mean, this is real history, but like big history, you know, history that you learn. This was something that... um, that you don't just learn about, you know, the emperor of, uh, of America. It's always fun when a story is centered around a contest between the endless two, because those contests are always more interesting because they have to be very elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're they're because they're endless. It's like they, they, their challenges have to be interesting to them. So, you know, that there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot going on there. I love how, when it comes down to it, desire is, the most obvious, the most just kind of blunt with with his her attempt to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, do, doesn't care about bending or breaking rules, is blatant and obvious and risky with how they go about doing something, and, you know, and they still lose. But yeah, Emperor Norton, I just, I, I find him super interesting. I was trying to find, this was, was the one I was talking about where I was trying to find a book uh, to read about him more. And there are some books, but they're not the easiest books to find. Um, the one from what I was, the little bit of research I did online that is kind of like the go-to is, I think I found it for like 50 bucks. Oh, I'm man. Not, I'm not like going to spend like 50 bucks. I, I checked the library, and it doesn't look like I can get it through my library. Um, so probably not going to happen, at least anytime soon. Be something I vaguely keep my eye out for. But he's just such an interesting character, but le- learning about him a little bit, uh, part of what makes him interesting is that he stood up for what he believed was right. You know, he may have been crazy and thought he was the emperor, but he was harmless. So people didn't um, didn't stop him from doing what he was doing. And because he like at, at the base of it all, from what I read, like he was just trying. He was being genuine with what he actually thought. So like his his actions were genuine like he spoke out for uh you know for for chinese citizens and stuff like that and when he died the the reverence people had for him was because of that 
I think that's why this is interesting. I think being genuine is probably the most important part of somebody's personality. Like if you are a genuine person, you're going to be a better person. You're going to, you know, mean more to people. There's a lot of positive aspects that have has. And if you're disingenuine, then there's a lot of bad there basically. Yeah. Um, so, but when somebody is so genuine, like this guy, I mean, even just reading this story, like you could see how genuine he is when it gets down to the, the last temptation that he has in the story, he gets through that, not because he doesn't want those things, but because he's genuinely going to be who he is and not sell that out for desires. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of why this story stood out to me so much. Like, he's a, a character that you can... Like, you end up getting to the end of the story caring about this crazy old guy that just kills over and dies on the street at the end. Yeah. And it's because of who he is throughout it. I like this story because I didn't know about this emperor until I read this story, you know, however many long years ago. But it is so believable because San Francisco has these types of kind of celebrity people that are just oddball people that are just well known throughout San Francisco. Even recently, like there's... Uh, there were the San Francisco twins who were these 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 nice ladies who were who were twins and they just they dressed identically in very kind of flamboyant outfits like furs and leopard prints and stuff like that always exactly matching outfits and would just go about their business in San Francisco doing that there's the 12 galaxies guy who Anybody who's been to any large event in San Francisco will recognize is just this kind of crazy guy who just shows up to everything. And I think he he holds these weird signs that don't make any sense. I think is famous because he wrote like 12 galaxies was one of the things that he would write on his signs at times. It'd be like 12 galaxies, CIA information transmental capacitance alien technology <laughs> like it just random things he would write on these signs and he'd just walk around carrying his signs and he's just another really well-known character in san francisco and so like san francisco has always had this this kind of normal people becoming well-known celebrities in the town just because for being eccentrically themselves and uh, this is just another case of that. Plus, having lived in San Francisco uh, for so long and, and kind of in the same neighborhood, apparently I live like five blocks away from where the emperor lived when I lived there. So nice. it's just like this story kind of resonated with me f- for that reason, in addition to just the storiness of it, which is this idea of dreams being more powerful than just about anything else. Like the dreams and stories that people have about themselves are more important than desire or despair or even going crazy. Like having, having a a dream can keep that from happening. And I thought that that was all really, really interesting. Yeah. And you get a couple of threads that matter in the bigger picture of things with um, Sandman too. Like the fact that he says in this, you know, you can't have despair without dream. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if he says it, but same thing with desire. It's like you have to be able to dream of things for the other endless to kind of have more meaning to them for most of them. 
that's why dream and death are pretty much the two most important ones is they they don't rely on the other ones as much as the other ones rely on them um you know destiny probably less so that's why destiny just kind of doesn't have to give a crap about you know what the the interpersonal bs of his siblings and uh, but you know, despair and desire are the two that hinge the most on on the rest, and and maybe delirium to an extent. But I also like it as you see her portrayed in this. Like she may hinge more on the others, but she also just doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really care about this contest. She's just there because she's supposed to be sorta and indifferent to whether anything happens in her favor with this contest. Yeah, we do see this like rivalry between a desire and dream really coming out in this issue. And that's it's something that I don't quite understand just about Sandman in general, because I think it's we really just have to take it that they have a rivalry. But it's I don't feel like it's ever quite explained. Why does desire hate dream so much? Desire desires dreams power desire desires to have that uh, you know i mean look at dream 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 is so smug you know like dream knows his importance he knows his place like his smugness is definitely based on truth you know it's not like he's smug about something that is you know he's inflating his worth or something like that and desires desire desires being their self you know Mm. they they desire to have that I, I think that's, I mean, it's just portrayed subtly and, and um, you know, it, death doesn't have the smugness of dreams. So desire doesn't desire to one-up that. I also think that, you know, I was kind of thinking about this, how death and destiny don't really interact with those younger endless much. Like, no matter what happens throughout a person's life and whether there's despair or desire you somebody goes crazy and it's delirium or or the dreams they have they're going to die like that death is inevitable and and destiny is unchanging and inevitable so it kind of seems like they are above the fray but dream seems to be the one who's like yeah i'm i i guess you're right he's like i'm all that like i'm i'm the man like you know and he doesn't hesitate from rubbing other people's nose in it about how important he is while like death and destiny don't because they're just kind of this inevitable thing that happens and so i think dream kind of having a stick up his butt about how important he is and acting it is probably what rubs them the wrong way yeah, he just he has no humility about it. I don't. Th- I don't even think he's doing it to get to them. He just is oblivious to his own behavior. I mean, like throughout this whole everything we've read so far, it's like death will call him out on his, um, you know, his like his childishness sometimes. But the the his behavior is always just rooted in he knows how important what he does is. And when he gets frustrated with others, it's because they're not respecting it. But then you see, like, when he gets taken out of the world, how much damage it causes to everything. And, you know, death would have caused more damage if she was captured like that. 
but the other ones it you know like they all hinge on him and he's not trying to rub that in with them but his his uh obliviousness to how smug he sounds is what rubs them the wrong way yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i get that yeah um uh, desire makes a statement like she's basically just trying to she wants to take him down you know one day i'll get him to to kill somebody in the bloodline like she doesn't care how much he she doesn't care how much they destroy just to show him up and i think that that it's just such a small little moment in that story but like it it just uh you know pushes that little note and i think that's one of the in the grander scheme of things, the most important thing in the story is just kind of illustrating how much desire wants to, you know, take dream down. I also think it's interesting that I was actually just going to point out that exact thing that desire says when they say, I'll make them spill family blood. I'll bring the kindly one downs on his blasted head. That is actually the end game of this series, right? Yeah. It's, Desire is actually telling us how this whole story is going to end right there. Yeah. And it's funny because I don't remember. I know I've read it. I don't remember it one bit. So, <laughs> okay. Well, well, spoiler alert. Yeah. Desire spoils the entire story right here <laughs> in terms of like the plot of what's going to happen yeah, to Morpheus. That's pretty much as much as I knew. But um, yeah. So, all right. So, on to the song of Orpheus. Okay, cool. This is one where when I started reading it, I thought, oh man, this is going to be a slog. It's like 50 pages. Oh, this is going to be another one where it's like Midsummer Night's Dream where, okay, technically it's good, but it just feels like a lot of work to get through it. And then I started reading it and I just flew through it. And before I knew it, I was done. And so my expectation that this was going to be kind of more of the, well, I have to read this one rather than I want to read this one was completely thrown on its head because I really enjoyed it. And just, it was so enjoyable. I just blasted through it incredibly fast. Yeah. I liked this one. Uh, I was glad it read fast also um, because I just needed to get it done to be honest. But (laughs) I, I think part of the reason that this was on the more enjoyable side too, is it showed a little bit of the character of some of the endless, including what's the name of the endless that, ran away that we actually destruction see destruction yeah we, we so we get to see destruction summon i don't think we've really seen him up to this point have we i think we maybe saw him in the background or something like that i don't think yeah, we've but we ever didn't really see his character at all we didn't interact with him at all to this point so that's one of the standouts to me of this is getting to actually see destruction in the family so you know yeah um that's interesting seeing some of the the interpersonal relationship in the family it's also kind of interesting seeing the whole family involved in a time in the world where their roles were a little bit different like they still had their roles but because the whole world was kind of more fanciful like you get this goat guy that ruins everything and he's just like he's just a person there he's like hey neighbor you know Mm -hmm. so they're able to be there in the world as part of the world instead of you know kind of hiding on the fringes while affecting everything so that's one thing that made the story more interesting then two, it's like there really is kind of a lot of quick moving plot in this, which makes it easy to read quickly because Orpheus is kind of going through a pretty big story in pretty short time as far as what happens. 
Uh, my biggest takeaway from this is that Orpheus uh, is a piece of crap. Interesting. He takes <laughs> after his father. Pretty much. like So I, I think Orpheus and all of this, like what it comes down to is he is he's more in love with the idea of things and then like than anything else that actually matters. You know? Well, that's that's what destruction really calls him out on. Yeah. And he's like, screw you, uncle. One thing that I thought was really interesting about this is I saw a lot of desire coming into this. Mm-hmm. Like, does it? You could look at it that this is this was uh, desire is what caused Aristeus, the what's he, the fawn guy, to go and chase after Eurydice at their wedding, which resulted in her death. And then it was desire, which made Orpheus go down to Hades after Eurydice. And so I, in, in a way I was, I, it was, I was kind of reading into it that are we seeing desire pulling those strings similar to how they did in the earlier story as well. And, or, you know, is this just, were there strings being pulled or is this just the mechanisms of mankind acting as they always do? You know, I thought that that was kind of an interesting question to me because another thing about this issue is it is so blatant with foreshadowing. It's, it's like hit you over your head foreshadowing. Like it, 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 you know, it's like from page one, it's like, it's your wedding day. And then it pans over to the the goat guy, like with an evil look on his face of anger. <laughs> and then, you know, they're at the the wedding and Eurydice is dancing around and Orpheus is like, look at her. She's so alive. And then pans over to death, like <laughs> staring at her. <laughs> like, it's just like, so if, if this wasn't a mythical story that we already knew it would be like grown worthy foreshadowing i think going on in this but because it's this mythical story that that feels inevitable it 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 works a little better <laughs> you know yeah than, than otherwise it, it would be like super grown worthy the blatant foreshadowing is like the quality of like a norm mcdonald or a vince vaughn movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. like dodgeball when he's talking to Lance Armstrong. You know, uh, I, I'm sure you won't make a decision that you'll regret for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. it, it won't haunt you forever. Um, yeah, that that definitely strikes you in this. The foreshadowing is so so obvious. It's it's hilarious. Like the way you just said it is exactly what I what I thought reading it. Um, like, oh yeah, getting married today. Nothing's going to go wrong. Look at my wife. She's definitely alive right now. Uh-huh. It's like, wait, whoa, 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 dad. What about that dream I had of my head being ripped off and my wife being dead? Uh, is there anything to that? It's like, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, son. Uh, one beats one me. of the funniest parts is that the, the endless are kind of like, Eesh, yeah, nope, nope. You just, because they know what's going to happen. They're just like, uh, yeah, I can't tell you. Boy, are you dumb, though. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's, uh-huh. like, that's my, kind of my biggest t- takeaway is uh, Orpheus is, he's he's so blinded 
and I think that's why why those things work is he's so blinded by desiring things like he you know his his uncle calls him out that like he's more in love with the act than the person and that drives his motivation is is desire and his desire is is you know it's kind of goes goes back to what I said earlier about being genuine versus not being genuine. You know, he's everything that happens in this happens because his motivations aren't genuine. It's not really because he's in love with Eurydice. It's because he's in love with being the center of attention, with celebrating these things. He's in love with being overly dramatic. He's in love with, you know, he's a, musician i suppose but like he really strikes me like every actor i've ever known you know that very very in love with the idea of things and doesn't really care about what's really at the root of that Hmm. yeah i can kind of see that it is kind of interesting it i mean some things are his fault some things aren't he definitely looked back on his way out of hades it was like victory was within his grasp. All he had to do was keep walking towards the end of that stupid cave and he would have had everything he didn't. But he got so wrapped up in this idea of, oh, they're just playing a joke on me. This isn't real. And he screwed it all up because of it. And I, I would imagine that that's rooted in the in, in like the real story, right? It's like this is based off of... Oh, yeah. 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 So, it's so like, yeah, pretty much... The if if you were to take out the endless out of this story, then it is just the myth. It's yeah. the 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 classic or myth of Orpheus of going down to Hades to the underworld to try to get his wife, the king of Hades. I think he does. He like sings a song that is so beautiful that it stirs the king of Hades, and he decides, okay, I'll let you have your wife, but here's the condition. You have to walk back and never look back until you reach the surface. If you look back, you're going to lose her forever, and then he becomes convinced she's not there and looks back and loses her forever, and then he is killed by the, uh, what were they called, like the Bacate or something? Mm -hmm. The, The Bacante, who... I guess were these like women of frenzy that were followers of Dionysus. So they would get all wind up and go nuts. So all of that is true, except for the head staying alive part of it. Yeah. Ugh, it's so funny. Yeah. Like his mom comes, you have to leave. They're going to come and kill you. I don't care. I think he cares after he's just a, a disembodied head. <laughs> For for all time because he can't die now because of uh, the deal that he made. Yeah. Oh, Orpheus. You yeah. Had to be melodramatic and now you're a disembodied head for all time that Joanna Constantine has to come and rescue. It does really make sense that this is Orpheus's son, though, because a lot of these same behaviors, this the stubbornness and the kind of attachment to no, this is what I think, and I'm just going to be so rigid in my thought that I don't care what the consequences of me thinking this are. Like, all of that is very similar to Dream. Yeah, I mean, the story ends with, you know, Dream coming to see him, and he set up for him to be taken care of, basically. 
And then he's like, wait, didn't she say you're not my son anymore, basically? And then walks off. And, th- and that's why in the other story, he couldn't be seen to be involved. It wasn't because of him trying to not be involved in mortal affairs. It's because he couldn't be seen by his son, who he still cares about, to care about him. Because his son told him, you're not my father anymore. So that's going to be that way forever. Yeah. Because of how stubborn he is. Yeah, and I think one of the funny takeaways with this, though, like, you're dead on with what you just said, like, it's this this stupid stubbornness, and that's, like, definitely the downside of Dream, but you don't try to outdo an Endless in what they do, like, you don't out-stubborn Dream, because no. you're not you're not going to win <laughs> that battle. It's impossible, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was actually, I enjoyed reading through that batch of stuff. When I started, I was kind of like, ugh. This happens sometimes with Sandman, where it's like, I'll, I'll pick it up after not reading it for a while, and that, that first story is like, man, do I really like this, or am I just telling myself to read this because, like, in my head, I like Sandman, because I read it before, and I know it's, like, kind of this big thing, and I want to enjoy it again. Like, it's really easy for us to build up for ourselves the importance of something, right? So every time I take a break from Sandman and pick it up, because usually I hit the wall in a spot that is a little bit tougher reading, so then when I go back to it, that's where I pick it back up. I'm always like, man, am I just convincing myself this is important work? Like, do I really want to read this again? Why am I spending all this money on these hardcovers? And then I get going a little bit. And once I get going and get to some of the better spots, like, yeah, this is worth doing. This is uh, definitely worth reading again. Yeah, that was, I think, similar to my experience. Even the issues where I thought, oh, this one's kind of going to be just uh, a, a while. I just have to get through this one because we have to get through it. I ended up just fascinated buying it and loving it and flying through it. And, you know, so these were, I thought, really good. So in a weird way, we talked about this a little bit, that these seem to be more tied into the plot, overall plot. And I just kind of want to get your thoughts on how these are as standalone issues. Because I think... I like the previous batch of standalone stories better than this one, just as far as individual stories go. I felt like there was more juice or meaning packed into those previous ones than this one. These ones. Can you, what were the previous ones? Can you give me like the, uh, yeah, it was like the, the dream of a thousand cats about the cat dreaming. There was the Calliope one, which actually ties into this one, which is mm-hmm. because Calliope is Orpheus's mother, and she was the muse that was captured by that writer dude. See, and this is why I ask. Like, I, I never remember those details. So, like, when you tell me those things, I'm always, like, I never remember them. So, I'm glad I asked. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually an interesting connection here. Is We've seen Calliope before. It was in that issue where she was captive of that scumbag... Yeah, right. And now, now it makes more sense too because she didn't want to call on Dream for help in that, be, and it was because of this because mm-hmm. Dream turned his back on Orpheus, so she was done with him. And then eventually, uh, when she needed help, she didn't want to ask him for help because of that. Man, these mm-hmm. these uh, you know these beings are are, are petty. Yes, <laughs> they're, they're super stubborn. Petty. Yeah. Um, uh huh. Yeah. So I think that um that that batch of stories. I remember when we got to reading that, I had a harder time getting going on it, and I was kind of dreading it more, and I had to push myself to get through it, but once I did, especially once we talked about it, I got more out of it, especially at that point, 
These, I feel like talking about it didn't add as much. Like those, I think that talking about it, like there was a lot to talk about and I didn't really realize it until we talked about it. Uh Um, These ones, I think, were a little bit easier to read, but they offered less. They're, you know, like less work, less payoff. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's fine. I think that, uh, you know, like I said, the introduction to some of these characters don't have a big impact on the grander scheme of things. You know, the first one with uh, with Orpheus obviously has an impact on the other Orpheus stories. But, like, how much does it have an impact on the greater world of the Sandman? Not not a, not as much as those other stories did. And the same with the other two. You know, the, the story about Augustus, like, he has no big impact on the Sandman universe. And then the, the story about uh, the Emperor of America, he doesn't have, you know, any impact. It's more seeing, yeah. like, the subtle impact that they have on those historical situations and i thought that they were more just they were more interesting stories on their own merit but had much less going out from them to the rest of it yeah i i think i i agree with you there it's they're interesting but just more plot based than character based i think and so there's yeah just a little a little less meat and exactly like you said that the last batch of short stories, when we talked about them, I felt like I got a ton more appreciation of those stories from our discussion. And this one was just kind of like, okay, yeah, you know, this is, this is what happened. And, and that's good. Here's a, here's some juicy nuggets in there, but that's kind of it. Um, though I do think that what is really on display in these issues is this theme of the importance of stories. And that seems to be one of the overall ideas of what Sandman is about is the ways that stories are important to people and the things that stories can do for people. And I thought that that was interesting in that light. It adds a, just a little more depth to that thematic through line of the series, but that's kind of like me stretching for it. Yeah, no, I I think you're right there though. And I think that that is actually something that's impactful with Sandman and when you understand that, um, you know, stories can be used to make things better when things are bad. Uh, like the emperor of America is, is the good example of that. You know I mean? He had nothing to live for. He was ready to kill himself, but then this story allowed him to have something to live for that, you know, wasn't, wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And then like in reality, you see the impact that he had on people just by continuing to live. You know, and so that's that's pretty meaningful. And then you see some of the downfalls in these stories of people's actions based on the stories they're told. You know, like Orpheus, I think, is the the clearest example where he he builds up, you know, the importance of things by building his story of how he wants to perceive things. And he does a lot of stupid things that cause a lot of destruction for himself and others. Mm-hmm. And... I think that that's a warning that when, you know, when thing when stories lead us to bad things, like looking past the story and getting to what, you know, what the root of the matter really is allows us as real people in real life to do things to actually make things better and to get out of the story. You know, like I think us yeah. in our own lives, we get caught up in our stories and when we can put that aside and see through it, 
Um, like I was sharing with you, I, w- I was going through a lot of anxiety these last few days with a couple of things. One thing with work, one thing with school, not knowing how it's going to kind of get to the end of it. And the anxiety comes from not knowing because you actually got to go through it and do it. Um, and one thing with how old I am, how many experiences I've had, having been through things before, I knew that I could put aside the story in my head of what was going to happen and just stay focused. And I was able to get through these few days that, that were kind of tough because of that. And once I got to the point where I started actually being able to like see concrete actions and see how things were actually happening, all of those stories, all of that anxiety was, there was much less there to base that on. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, th- that's one thing that I, I think is really interesting about. I mean, reading anything really, um, but like Sandman does it a lot. Where if you if you're reading and you're you're thinking about it, and you're trying to get more out of it, like there's a lot there that can help you understand things that can actually impact your life too. Like I've always said that um, I think you know reading prolifically is the greatest thing that people can do to be more caring for others because when you read. You have to put yourself in other people's shoes. You have to think with some empathy if you're reading. And that does a lot to grow your ability to to live that way. And when you live with empathy, you know, you live a life where you care more about other people. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great thing to get from these stories. Yeah. All right. Orpheus Good, yeah. Dick. That's, yes, I that. <laughs> Way to bring us back to the reality. <laughs> so uh, this means that the next story we're going to read is A Game of You, which is one that I really like. And I'm really looking forward to talking about. And, um, and I, I- hopefully we'll get to it sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm probably going to try to start reading that because uh, I, I have the volume already. I got it in, in my last order. Um, so I have the next hardcover, which should take us through, I think, another like three episodes or so uh, of talking about it. Um, I think I think it's usually about three per volume that we do. So I'm probably going to try to get started on that right away so we can keep rolling on this. Um, cool. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it because... As much as I end up liking these segments of reading that aren't part of... Like, there's a lot of parts of Sandman that feel like, okay, this is the core story of Sandman. And then there are parts that are, like, offshoots, you know? Like, I always look forward to the core stuff. And then the offshoots end up being good, too. But, like, the core stuff is basically, like, if you go in modern-day timeline, which would be, like, you know, the 90s, I guess. So, yeah, so, like, I'm always looking forward to that to kind of progress. The, okay, this is what's going on right now because all the other stuff, it's like, you know, the stories we read here, they happened, you know, hundreds of years in the past, but they're still, like, you know, telling of everything else. So, anyways, yeah, looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'm not sure when we'll get to a game of you, but we'll both probably start reading it and talk about it soon, hopefully. Yeah. So, for those following along, read a game of you next. Yeah, whether it's floppies or trades or deluxe hardcovers or absolute editions, whichever one you choose uh, is just going to tell us a lot about how you like to read comics. Okay. All right. Or what what you have. <laughs> That's it. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening.